You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. the Learning and Community Engagement Coordinator at the Office of Library and Information Services. The music you're hearing is Providence-based chamber choir Ensemble Altera performing Shenandoah in a rather surprising venue, a parking garage. Like everyone, performing artists have had to get creative during the COVID-19 pandemic. Singing in particular is considered a high-risk activity and is subject to additional restrictions to keep performers and audience members safe. Looking for an out-of-the-box way to keep sharing choir music with their audience, Ensemble Altera produced a beautiful series of video concerts this past summer that they filmed in a parking garage. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Christopher Lowry, the founder and director of Ensemble Altera and a world-class opera singer who grew up right here in Johnston, Rhode Island. My name is Christopher Lowry, and I work as an opera singer here in the U.S. and uh, kind of all around the world. Chris and I talked about his early experiences with music, what it's like to be an opera singer, and all about Ensemble Altera's creative pandemic projects. After graduating from Johnston High School, Chris earned degrees with distinction from Brown University, the University of Cambridge, where he was a choral scholar with Trinity College Choir, and the Royal College of Music International Opera School in London. He has sung in world-class choirs and performed in operas all around the world. His path to becoming an opera singer started when he was just a kid, though he didn't necessarily know it at the time. Yeah, it's kind of a convoluted path. I probably started just as a boy. I just really loved to sing, as cliche as that sounds, and then my family was always trotting me out for various occasions to sing, you know, national anthems and happy birthdays and Christmas songs and things like that. And then I ended up in the local church choir at Catholic Church where I grew up in Johnston. Then I got really, really serious about singing uh, in choirs. I did a whole bunch of that through high school and college. And I ended up moving to the UK because of the unparalleled choral scene there. And I thought that's, that was the track I was on. I was going to be a professional choral singer. Then I sort of got sidetracked while I was while I was studying. I had some lessons with a really influential Swedish singing teacher called Ola Blom. And um, she was merciless. <laughs> and she told me, you know, you could, of course, be a choral singer for the rest of your life. It's your your love and your passion. But you have a solo voice and you should definitely you should at least consider applying to conservatory. So I humored her. And um, and then bizarrely went to the Royal College of Music and was accepted on the spot and was offered a scholarship. And I, and I, and I sort of thought, okay, well, she was right and I was wrong and I probably should give this a go. So I, I, I did this course in opera training. I didn't know anything about opera when I started it, of course, because, you know, there are many people that from, from the youngest age want, that's their passion and their dream. And mine wasn't. So I felt like a real, I had massive imposter syndrome for the first couple of years, you know, but it was, it was just, a tremendous stroke of good fortune. And I sort of realized backwards that actually I, I'm quite suited to this job because the things that you have to be good at, I seem to gravitate towards nat- naturally anyway. Like there's the singing part of it, but then you have to also kind of be a bit of a psychologist 
And like my brain naturally goes into psychoanalysis all the time about people. <laughs> um, and then of course the acting thing, which, which I guess I didn't really know I was particularly gifted at, but I realized it wasn't as hard as I thought I thought. So yeah, it kind of happened organically and out of order, but then I sort of just realized, wow, this job really suits me. I, I didn't realize it would, and I didn't even know that I should aspire to it. But now that I'm doing it, I realize, oh, maybe I should have, maybe that should have been my dream. I haven't totally let go of my, you know, all the other kinds of music I do too, especially choral music. I actually have a little chamber choir here in Providence that I um, direct. And it's, that's kind of my, in my, usually in my off time, that's what I'm spending all of my leftover energies on doing. Chris mentioned all the other kinds of music he does. Besides singing choral music and opera, when he was young, Chris also played piano, clarinet, and the oboe. For all his interest in opera and deep classical music cuts, Chris also loves film scores, mentioning the work of John Williams in particular. John Williams wrote the music for Star Wars, Harry Potter, Home Alone, and E.T., among many others. As we discussed his personal history, we talked about how important early experiences can be and the kinds of events that might inspire young people to get involved in classical music. One example was the trend where full symphony orchestras play movie scores live along with a movie. My sister, for a couple Christmases ago, bought me one of those for the Barbican Center in London. They were doing E.T., which is like my favorite. And it was front row. I was like, I I went into it kind of cynically because I basically know the score forwards and backwards. And I know like even like all the different releases of the soundtrack, (laughs) all the different cuts. Like I've heard the bootlegs, like that's how well I know the score, you know. And, um, and I've seen the film probably like 50 times. So I thought, you know, I poured myself a glass of white wine and went in and thought, okay, this will be fun. But actually it was so moving. Ba- I basically started crying in the first few bars and did not stop. <laughs> like that's how powerful it was. And, and I thought, okay, I'm just insane. Like I'm so sentimental and clearly I'm the only one in here. And there were obviously a lot of kids who were probably like looking at me disturbed. Like who was this three year old man? on his own, crying to the E.T. soundtrack. But at the very end, like the final string tremolos or whatever, I caught eyes with the the first desk violin player and she was crying as she was playing. So that was just like such a moment, you know? So yeah, I'm sure there were kids and, you know, of all ages in that audience that day who connected with that music. I don't know how you couldn't, you know? The whoops and the hollers when they went into the final credit music was like, (laughs) it was so exciting. You know, that's when the, the hearts and minds of like seven and eight year olds or, you know, older, whatever, in terms of listeners, but you could have that one experience and that'll change someone's life, you know. If you're like me, you have no idea how an opera singer does their job or how operas come together. I learned that performing in operas is definitely not like the average nine to five job. There are pros and cons to this kind of career. Chris explained his process for preparing for a role how operas come together, and he shared some of the challenges of the lifestyle, as well as the things he loves about it. Yeah, the process tends to be, just generally speaking, like it's about three or four weeks of role preparation before you even arrive to work. So it's everything from banal stuff like highlighting the score for your part, to doing translation, to learning the actual music. And then because I sing a lot of Baroque music, there's a lot of vocal embellishment that we tend to have to incorporate into the score. So that's kind of, it's sort of like a composition process in a way. And then all of it needs to be memorized once it's all learned. Um, That tends to be the hardest part of the woodshedding for me and why it takes four weeks. It's like literally every day, kind of three, four hours a day, just grinding work of repeating phrases that you can ask anybody they've ever lived with. So it's a, yeah, it's a lot of repetition and, um, and then eventually it, it sinks in. 
opera is different from a lot of other like performance art forms in that at least as I understand them, when it comes to musical theater or straight theater or film, when you arrive for the first day of work, you need to be completely out of your copy. Everything has to be in your head already, for better or worse. I mean, it's, it's, it's great in the sense that it totally frees you dramatically and physically in a space to take on a director's vision. In another sense, it can hinder you a bit because it's impossible to arrive at that state of mastery of something without having developed your own ideas about the character and, and musical ideas. And sometimes, you know, when you start collaborating with someone, they might see things differently. And it takes you a while to like massage away your own individual thoughts and, you know, prejudices about a role and the music. But usually you can kind of arrive at some sort of consensus and work from there. So the actual in, in-person rehearsing normally happens when you're not in a global pandemic. Usually takes anywhere from, it depends on company. Um, but it can be as little as three weeks. That's that's very low. Normally, normally it's four or five, and sometimes it can be six or even seven weeks of just in the studio rehearsing. And that's where most of the work is done in terms of you are figuring out the physical blocking of how things work on the set. You're you know meeting and interacting with your colleagues, and you're doing a bunch of musical work also with the you know the orchestra or the pianists or whoever in the whoever in the space. And then typically speaking in opera, the the performance runs are kind of brief, like a, a really long run of shows for any given production is like more than 10, it's super long. Whereas like, you know, in theater or musical theater, it's not uncommon to have like 90 shows over three months or something like that. Whereas our performance period tends to be like two weeks done. It's like six to eight shows is the is the average so with a lot of preparation plus a lot of work in the space for really only about eight performances and i know most opera singers tend to feel like by the time they've finished the eighth performance that they've really only just cracked it <laughs> it's an interesting feeling you know you 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 very seldom are resting on your laurels in this in this job it's it's a lot of time management and juggling things around so in that month when i'm learning a role i'm probably also dipping in and out of different cities to do concert performances, which is the other side of what I'm doing when I'm not doing opera, which is just one-off performances of a piece of, you know, whether it be sacred music or concert repertoire. And that kind of engagement is usually either a couple of days to maximum a week. And so it's like you have one hand is in your score learning the opera role and the other one is like, oh, I have rehearsal today for, you know, box B minor mass or whatever. So yeah, you have to be able to keep multiple trains of thought going at the same time, which I'm really bad at, by the way. I really love to just like be done with one project and then say, okay, I'm going into my cave for three weeks and I'm doing nothing but learning the role. But you don't really have that luxury because otherwise you're only... Once you've, once you've added up the four weeks it takes to learn the role, plus the five weeks to rehearse it, plus the two weeks to perform it, it would mean that you were only getting paid once every sort of three months or so if you didn't do any other subsidiary work. So yeah, time management is a big thing for opera singers. Also travel, obviously. For the concert work, it's you're in and out of a city, kind of like a tourist, you know, you're there for a few days or a week max. But for the opera contracts, you, you really sort of like, you up sticks and you move it. It's like you move to a new city, sort of. You know, like when you're in Sydney for like seven weeks, you sort of feel like you've become a Sydney cider. You know where the all the shops are and you you make friends and you find out your favorite places to take exercise. And, and you feel like you're a part of the rhythm of the city. You're commuting with people, you know, you start to see the same people on your street. And then as soon as you've gotten into that rhythm, it's like, okay, you have to leave now. That's, that's quite hard. And it can be really hard on relationships, I guess, as you might expect, whether it's, whether it's romantic relationships or family relationships. It's like people have to understand kind of beforehand what, what they're getting into when they're 
you know, they have an opera singer in their life because they're always on the road. And it's not, it's not the kind of business trip lifestyle of like, I go away to Ottawa for, you know, four days and then I come home for the second half of the week. It's like really like I'm now gone for the next two months. So, so the, definitely pros and cons. And then the other like huge thing about, about opera singing is just so much of what you do when you're not in the rehearsal room or on the concert stage or in the theater is just completely self-directed. You just have to do all of your administration yourself, your timekeeping, your finances, your self-promotion. You know, it's like you're kind of like a CEO and a CFO and a marketing manager and all of that stuff all at once. And you have to be able to like motivate, motivate, motivate yourself to keep to all of these different schedules and to reply to all these emails. I mean, that that's hard for a lot of people who are like have an artistic disposition. Let's put it like that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's lots of challenges. I would never, ever think of trading them for something easier. I know if I'm in a project that I'm not really warming to or if I'm in a place I don't love. That like if I just wait a few more weeks, I know that there's something else that I can focus on and throw myself into. And there's like I I really don't like having to and have never liked having to like do the same sort of patterned day every day. Like wake up at this time and go into the office and come home. That doesn't that's never really suited me. I also like love meeting new people and seeing new places. You know, in short bursts. I don't love being a tourist, but I like I like being in a place where I can like sort of discover it at a moderate tempo and feel like I'm a, I'm a Parisian for like, you know, just pretend for a few weeks. I mean, clearly I'm not, but like, but then I, then I have feel like I have a taste of Paris that I wouldn't have if I was just there for like a, you know, a bon weekend. And um, I also just, I'm like a super airplane geek and I love, like I'm an ab geek and I love to just fly. I just, people are terrified of flying, but I don't know. It's one of those things that like, I'm just like a little kid when I got on a plane and I'm, where am I going now? And I love being in airports. I love transitioning between things. Actually, my favorite time of the year usually is December because like in the run up to Christmas, it's like, oh, when am I going to get on that flight home? You know, <laughs> I get really worked up. Opera singers sing in different voice ranges, depending on how high or low they sing. This also determines the kinds of roles they tend to perform. You've probably heard of the major ones, soprano, alto, tenor, baritone, bass. But Chris has a more unusual voice range. My voice type is a kind of a rare one because I sing countertenor, which is it's sort of like a really high male voice that it's mainly like sort of falsetto mixed with a little bit of chest register. But it's there isn't so much music written explicitly for that voice type. A lot of it that was written explicitly for countertenor was written in the last 50, 60 years. However, a lot of the repertoire from the 18th centuries and earlier that was written for castrated guys, it bizarrely kind of suits countertenors nowadays. So that's where uh, most of my bread and butter is repertoire wise. It's a lot of 18th century music by Handel, Vivaldi, you know, composers like that. And generally speaking, um, most of these composers wrote the, the main heroic role for my voice type. So that's what I end up doing more often than not. What's great about it is that if you're singing a role as a countertenor that was written for a castrato, it tends to be like one of the main roles in the piece, and therefore you get lots of great music to sink your teeth into. So that's always a lot of fun and a lot gives you a lot to explore. Occasionally there are secondary roles, compromario roles, where you can just play. Like, actually, I did a, a piece a few years ago, a, a new opera version of Hamlet, and the composer wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as countertenors. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just a totally different thing. I mean, it's like light comic relief. It's you know, physical comedy, it's punchlines, it's silliness. And that's a whole different range, you know, for me. So I had great fun. 
Here's a clip of Chris singing Jaimido in Onivera from the Vivaldi Opera Farnace to give you an idea about what a countertenor sounds like. clear from talking to Chris that, though it may not have been his lifelong dream, he has nonetheless developed an incredible passion for opera. For those of us who may not know very much about it as an art form, Chris has some inspiring words about why he loves it. What I love most about opera is that it's the most pure, naked celebration of the human voice. And I know, of course, there are lots of different musical forms that are about singing and vocalism, but the tradition of opera is about how you can push the voice to its ultimate kind of Olympic limits and how you can do that in, you know, spaces where there's no amplification, generally speaking, you know. And, and the other thing that's kind of just incredible about opera is that it's really like it's a merger of all of these different fine art forms that all come into something and become more than the sum of the parts. I mean, there's the theater and there's the dramaturgy and there's the, you know, the artistic element in the costume design and in the set design. And maybe it, it depends on the production, but maybe there's dance and there, there might be statuary and lighting design and photography and all of that. So I find that really exciting because when you're working just day to day on a show, you're typically surrounded by a bunch of artists in lots of different media who are like all kind of at the top of their game, you know, it's super humbling. And then you realize like, I'm just a cog in the system. Like I'm a pretty good singer, but I would not be able to tell you the first thing about how to design that thing or how to make that machine go or um, how to coordinate 80 people to do all of this, all of this work at the same time without crashing into each other or, or <laughs> losing their patience with each other. I mean, there's just, there's so, there's so much, it's kind of like been bequeathed to us over centuries of figuring out how to do it. You know, it's like, it's kind of an inheritance in a way. And you sort of feel like when you go to work, it's like, wow, it took us a few centuries to figure out how to like get this to work so well and to get and to get everybody to buy into it at the same time into this one massive massive vision i had one last opera question for chris that i thought might be useful for listeners who either want to listen to more operas or are already opera fans what is his favorite opera oh my gosh it's so hard to not answer this question because like first of all i can't choose so i love i mean i love mozart operas obviously those were like my first love and they probably always will be. But also as I've gotten like older, I, I'm also more attracted to the heavier German romantic stuff. So, you know, the, the ring cycle, which like if you can sit through it, which most people cannot, and I totally recognize that. But like if you had to pick, if you had to pick one of the four that you would sit through, I would say um, Valkyrie is probably worth it. It's so heartbreakingly beautiful. And I also love the Strauss operas. Rose and Cavalier has just got the most sublime musical ending probably that, any opera has. 
I wouldn't necessarily buy a ticket to go sit through Puccini, but I understand that it's like massively popular and actually it makes up like 90% of most ticket sales at, at most of the parochial opera houses. So there's clearly something there that speaks to, to people. So who am I to sit in judgment of it? And then of course, I just love all of the Baroque stuff because that's mainly what I sing. So Handel and Rameau, French stuff. But yeah, oh my God, how do you choose? Like if, like if I were to make my favorite opera, it would be like a scene from this opera into a scene from this opera, you know, and I would like make a kind of a pastiche. <laughs> that probably would be like my favorite opera. Generally speaking, like music that's written in an idiom that's 300 years old doesn't typically provoke you to tears or not me anyway. But when it does, then it's like, oh, wow. Okay, something in this music is like profound and kind of like, if it can still speak to an audience like 150 years after it was written, then there must be something there. Gosh, I don't know. That's such like an all it's like It's like someone saying like, they ask you that question, like, name your favorite book. And you're like, um... And then, and then it tends to happen that when I'm listening to any given opera, while it's happening, I'm like, this is my favorite opera. Like, <laughs> until I hear another one, I'm like, oh my God, this is my favorite opera. Why, why do I listen to anything else? This is the best. Because he isn't busy enough, when Chris is not traveling to perform, prepping for his next role, or singing in a choir in his home base in London, he returns home to Rhode Island to work with Ensemble Altera, a chamber choir that performs music from the Middle Ages to the present. Suddenly faced with some unexpected downtime because of the pandemic, Chris and the group created a series of recorded performances in a parking garage in downtown Providence. Chris explains the history of the group and also why a parking garage. Yeah, well, you know, so I was saying I started in the whole church music, church choir thing when I was young. And then when I was a teen, I got really serious about choral music. I sang at a kind of fancy Episcopal church on the east side of Providence called St. Stephen's. I always, always wanted to go and sing in the UK. And, and I did grad school at the University of Cambridge and sang with a, a kind of world famous choir there called Trinity College Choir. So that was kind of the, that was the life plan before opera intervened. And I was going to stay on that track for a while. But I always like from the time, even when I was, when I was an undergrad, I always did musical direction of the little choirs that I sang in. So I kind of always had it a little bit in the background. And then about sort of five, 10 years ago, I decided, okay, I have to have a group in the US for when I'm home and in between projects, like for long stretches in the summer. Um, and so that's why I started this chamber choir called Ensemble Altera. We started very much as like purely singing Renaissance repertoire. And there's quite a few choirs like that in the area. Um, and then there's a bunch of groups that sing with, uh, with Baroque orchestras. But actually in New England, there is not a single group that I know of really, that's like a, like a high level chamber choir that is sort of like a small size choir, basically doing all of the major choral repertoire from all the different periods. Over the last few years, my choir has been branching out and branching out and, and doing more and more different styles of music. And then of course the interest in the group has grown such that, you know, I have like incredibly good singers that are working for the, the ensemble now. I just felt that New England certainly needs something in this mold and of this caliber. So I, I started working with a bunch of singers in Providence and now quite a few singers from Boston to grow the group into something potentially long-term because I, I sort of think like, you know, also a solo singing career has a time, it's a time limited proposition <laughs> and, you know, I won't be able to do it forever. And I, and I would love to have um, an ensemble that I could work with more full time when I'm done with my solo exploits. And of course, it was my first true love in terms of singing. And I, 
I'm one of the rare directors that actually sings from within the group, which is a whole other thing. Um, so it also kind of like gives me an excuse to be able to do some high level choral singing, which I don't necessarily get the chance to do much of these days anyway. So yeah, the pandemic gave us gave me all of this blank space in my diary. <laughs> and uh, I just, my my heart immediately sprung into thinking about, oh, what can what can I do with my choir? What can I do with Altera? And of course, there were these new social distancing regulations. Everybody was worried about, rightly so, about aerosol transmission of the virus. So contained spaces were a big no-no and singing potentially a big no-no because, you know, singing produces more airborne particles. So I started scratching my head and thinking about, oh, where could we do music where it would be relatively safe? That was kind of like outdoors, but had an appropriate acoustic because for acapella choral music you really need to be in a very particular kind of acoustic for it to work well again it's not amplified so generally it only works in like stone buildings like churches and so on and i thought i had always been thinking about doing something in a parking garage and i thought that would be a perfect fit so over the summer we went into like a newly christened parking garage in downtown providence and we just basically recorded a series of videos there we had such a great response to it. I mean, a whole bunch of people that had never heard of our group from in the local area, but also like, you know, friends and colleagues abroad everywhere were like, wow, this group is really, really something special. And and where are they from? Where are you guys? Are you in New York? <laughs> no, actually, we're in Rhode Island. <laughs> you know, so that I think that's a real credit to the, the caliber of the local um, singing talent. Here's a clip of Ensemble Altera singing Danny Boy from their second episode, Folk Songs. After the rousing success of the Summer Parking Garage series, the group knew that a sequel was in order. It's too cold to sing in a parking garage now, but they were able to find something else that worked. When we were done with that, I mean, that really took from conception to the, the finishing of the editing process, like took about four months. I mean, it's a, it's a big thing, but I thought, oh, we have to do something. We have to do a sequel. And I also started to get the sense that, okay, well, we had the lull in the summer in cases and things kind of relaxed to a degree, but obviously, the winter is coming and things are getting darker and colder again and people are going back indoors and therefore there's more transmission and, you know, more restrictions are coming. And I, I know a lot of these singers still have work that's been postponed or canceled or whatever. So I thought, what should we do? And for years and years and years, I've always wanted to do concerts of Christmas music with this choir, but I'm always so busy at the Christmas season with my own solo stuff. I'm never, ever free, but this year I am. <laughs> So I thought, okay, why don't we record like a sequel project? This time, let's do let's do a whole bunch of Christmas music. Of course, it's super cold now. Being outdoors in the parking garage is not the smartest idea. So we found a church that a very big church that will allow us to go inside and record there. And the group is we're gonna do we're gonna do it across five days, you know, five consecutive days, so that we don't really interact with anybody else for those five days. And we're all getting COVID tested, and we're gonna stay in a sort of stable COVID bubble for the week. 
and make some recordings for the Christmas season. And what's really exciting is that even people who aren't particularly serious uh, classical music fans, typically in December, they'll be going to things like Messiah's or uh, Pops holiday concerts, or they're interacting with Christmas carolers or whatever it is, you know, or they're at church services where they, where they hear choral music, maybe the one time in the whole year. And this year, I, I think a lot of them, a substantial portion of them will have none of that. So it just makes so much sense. Like, okay, we're at a distance. We're not having an audience and we're going to bring you all this beautiful music and make, make it beautifully, something visually beautiful. In, in a funny way, I don't think I would have had the space to stop and think about it if the COVID thing hadn't happened. So it's not been all bad news. When you're programming for such a mass audience like the internet, it can't exactly be. And also, I, I also feel like at this time, this is sort of like what people want right now, particularly. It's just, please bring me something comforting and peaceful and healing. Please give me something that reaffirms some form of normality. So I see that very much as a mission for this particular project. Like, it's Christmas music with, like, a winter blanket and, like, a cup of tea, <laughs> you know? And that's and and also I love the fact that like people will watch it probably probably in their homes like cuddled up with a book or whatever they're doing you know because normally they'd be like sat in rapt attention in a in a concert hall or in a church and they'd have to you know really they'd have to be behaving in such a way where they're fixated for an hour and they don't have to listen to the music like that when we distribute it you can listen at your own pace you can do one episode you can do one song within an episode and you can pause and you can come back to it and um, and we're doing this amazing like kind of GoFundMe campaign to help it happen. And basically we've, we've set it up so that if you're able to donate like $50, we'll also send you like an, an album version of it. Like at the beginning of December, people will have like a, a Christmas album that they can play in their houses or in their cars or whatever. And um, I think that'll appeal to a bunch of people who probably aren't going to be going out this year and buying new Christmas albums or, they, you know, or they're, or they're not going to be able to go see their local church choir do their Christmas concert. This final clip is Ensemble Altera performing The Holly and the Ivy from their most recent episode, Evergreen. Thank you so much to Chris Lowry for talking with me. We actually talked for nearly two hours about music, opera, and Chris's life. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Talk about all this fun stuff. Check out all four episodes of Ensemble Altera's Summer Parking Garage series at their YouTube page linked in the show notes. New Christmas episodes are released every week in December. If you'd like to hear the full versions of songs excerpted in this episode, stay tuned after the credits for the full version of Shenandoah and Danny Boy. You can donate to Ensemble Altera's Christmas series at gofundme.com forward slash Altera Christmas. That is gofundme.com forward slash A-L-T-E-R-A Christmas. And learn more about Chris's opera career at ChristopherLowry.com. Finally, in the show notes, you can find links to performances of the operas that Chris mentions in his favorite sections in case you want to explore those too. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services. 
and is made possible with funding from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities.